A little more than a year ago, my distinguished former colleague, Stanley Ellis Cushing, sat down in my office for a regular meeting and broke the big news. He told me that by the end of the calendar year, he planned to retire. This was an enormous change. Many of you who know and love Stanley, who is with us tonight, will know that he worked at the Athenaeum since 1970, and it was as difficult to imagine this place without him as it would be to imagine it without the books. But Stanley was patient and had wonderful discussions with me about the opportunities that we faced, discussions that coincided with an opportunity at the level of our Board of Trustees to think about the future of the Athenaeum and to affirm the critical role that our special collections play in our mission and in our aspirations for the years ahead. With those ideas in mind, I proposed to the board the notion that when the time came to fill Stanley's role, we should consider expanding the mandate of the position so that we would not only have an extraordinary curator of rare books, a real book person, but also someone experienced in leading by example, someone who would be a wonderful mentor and inspire a team to new heights, Everyone told me I was crazy. They said there was no person who really knew rare books who could also read a budget spreadsheet. <laughs> there was no one who knew dealers in the antiquarian book world who was also a really effective manager of people. But as those of you who know me can recount, I'm always an optimist, and I was certain we could do this. But to bolster the efforts, I assembled an extraordinary team of helpers on a search committee that I think it's not an exaggeration to describe as Olympic class. And because we have the members of that committee with me tonight, I would ask that you please stand and be acknowledged as I read your names. We had uh, our trustees, Susan Weatherby, Earl Collier, and Alexander Altshuler, all experts in different aspects of the special collections. Harvard University's Carl, Carl Fortzheimer University professor and university librarian emeritus, Robert Darnton. Boston College's Burns librarian and associate university librarian for special collections, Christian DuPont. And Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum's William and Leah Porview, Curator of the Collections and Exhibition Program, Christina Nielsen. Don't be shy. Stand up. With their help, we assembled a list of more than 90 names. And I decided that I would use my summer vacation from the pleasant perch of the coast of Maine in August to begin making phone calls. And the breakthrough call for me happened at the end of August when I spoke with Michael Suarez, who many of you will know as a distinguished scholar of rare books and the long-serving director of UVA's Rare Book School. He'd had time to contemplate the email message I'd sent to him and brought all of the intellectual rigor one might expect of a Jesuit to the, to the process. And when we got on the phone, he had a single name with which he led the conversation, John Booktel. 
Over the next few days, I googled the Dickens out of John and read much of his writings and had reached out to him within about 48 hours to set up a call. And during the course of that phone call, my smile grew broader and broader until my colleague Emily Cure couldn't stand it anymore and put her head around the door and whispered, is this good? <laughs> you can imagine how delighted I was to see John's materials appear in an extremely strong pile of applications for the job, and the happiness has continued ever since. I think we've pushed out his formal credentials so often in messages to you over the past few days, I won't recite his full curriculum vitae, but I'll mention a couple of highlights. He is coming to us from his current position at Georgetown, where he serves as director of the Booth Family Center for Special Collections, a center that emerged under his leadership and is an extraordinary resource for research and teaching. Prior to that, he's held special collections librarian positions at Johns Hopkins and also at Georgetown. He's taught widely. He has a PhD from UVA. And as you are about to discover, he has infectious enthusiasm for the book. Please join me in welcoming John, not only to the podium tonight, but to the special community that is the Boston Athenaeum. Thank you, Lizzie, for that very generous introduction. Thank you, members, proprietors, trustees, and guests for coming tonight. Um, I uh, have been looking forward to this, and I consider it a deep honor to have been asked to address you, and, uh, and an even deeper honor to follow in the footsteps of Stanley Ellis Cushing, um, whom I've had the the pleasure and privilege of meeting, and I look forward to getting to know him. Um, and I look forward to getting to know the Athenaeum's collections, uh, extraordinary collections, and in making those collections better known to all of you as well. And since you won't see this um, particular slide again later in the talk, I'll just point out two very, very fun things that I love about it. One is this trompe l'oeil image that was produced in 1943 um, with Orson Welles and Joan Fontaine on the cover does not attribute itself. Uh, it is, I believe, an unofficial, perhaps even pirated use of their uh, visages. And it also, as a trompe l'oeil image, is uh, making itself look like a 19th century railway novel, um, which I, I, just, I just love. This is not the hallway next to the dining room that I and my family have been diligently packing up so that we can move to, to Boston to join you here on a daily basis. This is not a thermostat. <laughs> and this 
as I'm sure you have all guessed by now, is not a Magritte. And now we have arrived so very rapidly at the audience participation portion of our proceedings. What's this? Well, of course it's the Parthenon. But it's not. It's a photograph of the Parthenon, right? Except it's not. It's a postcard of a photograph of a Parthenon. Except it's not. It is a digitized scan of a postcard of a photograph of the Parthenon. Except it's not. <laughs> it's streaming light reflected off a screen of a postcard that has been scanned of a photo that has been printed of a building that stands some 4,700 miles away from where we are tonight. We are at least four removes, not to mention 4,700 miles, from the Acropolis, even as with the name of our institution, we honor and take inspiration from the Athenians who, together with the foreigners who lived there, used to spend their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear something new. A mentor of mine used to enjoin me that a postcard of the Parthenon is not the Parthenon. I've purloined my title tonight from him, and I've perhaps also stolen a bit of my own thunder from my Parthenonian trick question by indulging first in sharing my photos of my little Lararium to René Magritte. But both analogies help us, I hope, to get the point. With artwork, and even more so with architecture, we grasp readily that while reproductions and facsimiles can be useful tools, even beautiful presences, they never fully substitute for the original. To see, for example, a Gilbert Stewart or a John Singer Sargent reproduced in a book or print is a wonderful thing. Yet we take it almost for granted that to view their portraits of James Perkins or Ad Annie Adams Fields in person, hanging on a wall in an Athenaeum, you can see James Perkins right there, is a different experience in quality if not in kind. Rather than proceed further down the Benjaminian rabbit hole of works of art in the age of mechanical reproduction and its effects on perception and, and authenticity, I want to shift focus now to the primary subject of my talk, works that even in their originals were produced as multiples 
sometimes by factors of hundreds, sometimes by factors of thousands. Is our response to the difference between originals and reproductions the same when it comes to books as it is when it comes to artworks? Other artworks, perhaps I should say. I shall submit to you, O noble Athenians, people of Boston, a series of axioms together with illustrative examples appertaining thereunto in this my geometry of rare books and then leave it to you to consider and weigh and debate their validity. My first proposition is that of my title, a picture of a book is not a book. When we encounter, for example, a reproduction or a facsimile or a projected image from the magnificent 1493 Nuremberg Chronicle, we can enjoy a beautiful map or an impressive city view. We can begin to gain a certain sense of the most lavishly illustrated book of the incunable or cradle period of printing, the first 50 years after Gutenberg. But reproductions lack immediacy. Even if we have the measurements, the reproduction conveys no sense of the actual scale, either enormously out of proportion on a screen or dramatically reproduced, uh, re, uh, dramatically reduced in a reproduction in, a, in an exhibition catalog. 47 centimeters. 47 centimeters. This is a big book. Corollary. A book is something that you can pick up and hold in your hand. The eminent historian of typography, Harry Carter, once observed that type, printing type, is something that you can pick up and hold in your hand. And this was true until the advent of photographic typesetting in the mid-20th century. This is true of books as well. Even a big folio incunable, like the Nuremberg Chronicle. An image on a screen or a facsimile reproduction cannot fully communicate the thrill of touching a 500-year-old object. Half a millennium. An object created the year after Columbus sailed the ocean blue. The past made palpable. I've had the privilege of owning, owning two glorious copies of the Nuremberg Chronicle in past curatorial roles. And I get to show a copy every summer when I teach the history of the book at Rare Book School at the University of Virginia. 15th century paper is surprisingly crisp. The ink on an incunable page is often surprisingly rich and fresh. I have not had the pleasure of owning a copy of this book for the past 10 years, and I have never owned a hand-colored copy. You all own a hand-colored copy. This is the Athenaeum's copy. The professional hand coloring you see here in the Athenaeum's copy is remarkable. This reproduction 
admits of only a shadow of the delight of turning the page and reveling in the vividness of 500-year-old professional color on the page. Proposition two. You can judge a book by its cover. I cut my curatorial teeth on Rare Book School's remarkable collection of publishers' cloth book bindings, assembled in support of the late Sue Allen's legendary course on the history of that subject. I learned from Sue that the books of each decade of the 19th century are as distinctive to the trained eye as kitchen appliances from the 1950s or 70s or 90s are to the rest of us, or at least most of us. Plain with grained or ribbon embossed cloth, 1830s. Elegant, asymmetrical, with simple central panel stamps and just a bit of gold, 1840s. After the 1849 gold rush, unsparingly lavish, with gold everywhere, yet still symmetrical. By the time we reach the 1870s and 1880s, we've come upon the advent of asymmetry with black stamping and design elements inspired by the Far East. The 1890s ushered in a return to symmetry and fin de siècle designs. Known, named designers began working for various publishing houses and adding their monograms to their covers. Margaret Armstrong's work is distinctive. Here is her MA monogram. And one of my very favorite covers on a book she designed here for Boston's Houghton Mifflin. The work of Boston's own Sarah Wyman Whitman is, I hope, well known to you all, very distinctive. I was already falling in love with the Athenaeum's collections when I spotted the stained glass that she designed hanging in the window just outside this room. That clinched it. <laughs> Proposition three. Every bottle shapes its message. Every container affects its contents. Moving from covers to the interior of books, we can borrow a page from the playbook of current bibliographic theory and observe that a work, a work is distinct from any particular manifestation of that work. If you've read the novel on Kindle, or if you've listened to the novel in MP3 format on your mobile device, or if you've read the novel in a beat-up mass-market paperback, you have read the novel. You have experienced the work. One particular manifestation of the work. But unless you've read the novel as it first appeared, you have not experienced the work as its contemporaries experienced it. 
What have you missed? Let me illustrate with this particularly salient example from one of my very favorite books. This is the first edition of Charles Dickens's novel, Bleak House. After Great Expectations, which was published in three volumes, Dickens composed almost all the rest of his great novels serially. This goes a long way toward explaining his rock star-like status and success in mid-Victorian England. The standard three-volume novel of the day cost a guinea and a half, 31 shillings and sixpence, an artificially inflated price that cost more than an average weekly wage. By contrast, each part of a serial Dickens novel was issued monthly at a price of one shilling per part. You can see the price in the upper right-hand corner. Over a period of 19 months, the uh, last number was a double number. It was like buying your fiction on the installment plan. If you read your Dickens in the typical modern one-volume paperback, you're missing out in significant ways on what the experience was like for his contemporaries. Each part contained two lively steel-engraved illustrations by well-known illustrators like Fizz, Hablet K. Brown. Readers could see an author-approved depiction of Esther Summerson and Caddy Jellybee. I, I love the look on Miss Jellybee's face. Despondent. And wouldn't you be too if you lived in Mrs. Jellybee's household? Each part except the final double number consisted of four chapters. Dickens typically put in a hook at the end of each fourth chapter. And the idea was that you would keep the readers running back for more, but the effect, especially when you read it in a modern mass market paperback, is a curious rising and falling action. Every four chapters, you have uh, a rise and a, and a climax and a denouement all over again. It also helps to explain the anticipation the reading public developed for the next month's installment, not unlike waiting for that next episode of Lost or 24 or Game of Thrones or even Downton Abbey. The advertisements surrounding the text form an important part of the social context of the novel, sometimes as many as 24 pages of hair lubricant and pulmonic wafers of crochet cotton and page after page of new books. Sometimes the adverts invoke the novel directly, as in this one at the back of the first part. And... Uh, And woe to the inhabitants of the bleak house if he is not armed with the weapons of an overcoat and a suit of fashionable and substantial clothing such as only can be had at the firm of E. Moses and Sons. I just, just love the purple prose. Clearly an advertising copywriter who had not actually read the novel.
Proposition 4. You never know what you'll find in an Aldine until you look inside. Aldous Minutius was one of the most influential printers of the late 15th and early 16th centuries. He is known for the introduction of italic type, the preservation of many classical texts important to Renaissance humanist scholars, including the first printed edition of the Greek text of Aristotle, a copy of which can be found here in the Athenaeum's collections, a series of pocket-sized octavo editions of classical texts, the beauty of his typography, and, as you can see on this title page, his instantly recognizable dolphin and anchor printer's device, Festina Lente, Make Haste Slowly. Hoping to find examples of Aldine's exhibiting some of these features to show my students, I went spelunking in Georgetown's rare book stacks and came back up with a remarkable find in a book printed in 1589 by one of Aldous's descendants, this book, uh, on the, uh, on the uh, history of the Republic of Venice. I don't know how well you can all see them, but in the margins there are little handwritten annotations, correction marks. While it's not unusual to find handwritten corrections in 16th century books, many punctilious owners did this with their books, it's very unusual indeed to see something like this. Down in the lower right-hand corner, there is a marking in red crayon. Um, it's identifying the signature number and providing a calculation for a typesetter or so I surmise. This book served as a printer's proof copy for a subsequent edition. Now that it's been identified, it was hiding in plain sight, our online catalog and our printed card catalog, neither one said anything about these features of this book. Now that it's been identified, it's waiting for an enterprising young scholar to take up the challenge of seeing what new knowledge about printing house practice can be deduced from it. I actually could multiply examples of other Aldines that uh, I've found fun and interesting things in, but let's move on to the next corollary. You never know what you'll find in a book until you've examined your sixth copy. Back in my youth, when I was doing my dissertation research on 17th century English book dedications, I was thrilled to learn that the entire corpus of microfilm of pre-1701 English books had been scanned into a then-new database called Early English Books Online, EBO as we call it for short. Librarians love acronyms. My research was transformed. I was able to read the only surviving copy of a book uniquely held in the Lambeth Palace Library across the Thames from Westminster Abbey without leaving the comfort of my Virginia home. Similarly, 
I could now access the 1616 edition of George Chapman's translation of Homer, immortalized in the famous sonnet of Keats, from the convenience of my own kitchen at 2 a.m. The only trouble was that, given the limitations of scanned microfilm, some of the book's preliminaries, its prefatory matter, and that's what I was interested in, weren't legible. So I went and looked at a real copy in UVA's special collections. I got interested in Chapman's uh, memorial engraving commemorating the late Prince Henry. Prince Henry wound up becoming the focus. His, his literary patronage became the focus of my, my research. A hundred books in um, 18 years that he sponsored. The boy who would have gone on to become King Henry IX, but he died prematurely in 1612, 18 years of age. I ordered an expensive high-resolution digital image now I could read that prefatory sonnet um, in which Chapman bewails the fact that King James has not followed through on his promise, uh, on Prince Henry's promise, um, to give him a princely salary. King James never followed through. It took me a while meditating on that image's emblematics. The, the columns of Hercules, to realize that these weren't just the columns of Hercules. In their multi-layered iconographic richness, they also form a huge capital H. H for Hercules, H for Henry. Surely this beautiful digital image was enough, but I had already imbibed the bibliographical water and had converted to the belief that you never know what you'll find until you've looked at as many copies as you can. So I kept examining other copies whenever I could, never mind on first looking into Chapman's Homer. It was not until, like stout Cortez standing on his peak in Darien, examining my sixth copy, that I finally noticed that when you hold this page up to the light and you examine that blank space underneath the crossbar of the H, you see this watermark in at least a number of copies. This itself is an emblem of the columns of Hercules and a capital H, and it adds another layer of interconnected signification since the paper that bears it had been created in France in memory of Prince Henry's hero, the late French king Henri Cat. I had uncovered what could very well be the earliest example of a printmaker self-consciously matching his choice of watermark, his choice of paper, to the subject of his engraving, something that no digitization project would ever have captured, it never would have thought to try. Proposition 5. Two copies of a book are four times as interesting as one. 
One copy by itself can be interesting, but a second copy can be revelatory. Sometimes a second copy allows for bibliographical discovery through the almost forensic analysis of how books were produced. This is a late 16th century book in sheets. It's a saint's life, uh, uh, the the patron saint of of Austria. Um, A book that never got folded, that never got sewn, that never got bound. It was left in the warehouse. And how it survived, I know not. Um, these are very uncommon things, although they're not unheard of. And I um, have trained one or two of my favorite antiquarian bookseller friends to keep an eye out for me. And every so often one turns up, and every so often it's affordable. This copy is unusual yet further, in that it contains two copies of the leaf that bibliographers would identify as signature D2. You can see where um, on the right, your right, um, the page has been slashed through, cut purposefully by the printer with a knife to indicate that this page is to be canceled. This is the, uh, the cancelandum, as the bibliographers would say, that which is to be canceled. And on the left, you have a single leaf, another copy of the exact same page, signature D2. This is the cancelands, that which is doing the canceling the leaf which is to replace the book, the, this, the cancel, the cancelandum, when the book gets bound. And the bookbinder would know this is the universal shorthand for what to do when you run into this. As far as I know, this may very well be the only surviving copy of the uncorrected uh, leaf. It provides an opportunity for enterprising young scholars to ask the question, what did they change and why? Um, And I acquired this so recently that I have not yet done the homework to figure it out. I think it may just be a typo, but down at the bottom of the left-hand column, you can see in the uncorrected copy, um, the full name of the Trinity in Latin and on the right-hand uh, page, the, the, the leaf that is doing the, the, the corrected leaf, um, they've had to make space, and so they've had to shorten it. The correction is actually further up the page. Um, but now it's just Gloria Patri, etc. <laughs> Sometimes the differences between two copies can be... Um, important for more social and historical reasons. Um, that, past, that last example is, is really for, very much for specialist book historians, I would say, although I hope you all um, get the idea. Um, this is two copies of the same book bound in completely different bindings. Georgetown already had a copy in pigskin, the copy on the right, blind stamped, and um, uh, late 16th century book uh, of theology by yet another Jesuit. 
Um, and the copy on the right, uh, sorry, the left, your left, is bound in vellum. It was offered to me as a donation. I had to ask myself, do we need another copy of this book? I don't know of any typographical variants, although if you look hard enough, you might find some. But just to be able to make the point to a group of students, a group of researchers, um, uh, someone who's interested in understanding how books came to be, the idea that every book in the early modern period was bound individually to order, they were bespoke. The idea that a bookbinding says something about the locale in which it was read and consumed and produced, the, the pigskin copy almost certainly comes from Germany, and indeed uh, it has, I believe, an Ingolstadt uh, Society of Jesus of, of uh, Ingolstadt provenance, and the copy on the left, the vellum copy, bound in the Italian manner, the man who gave it to Georgetown found it in a bookstall in Rome and almost certainly spent the bulk of its life there. It says something about how books circulated, how the book trade networks worked. Um, one, one little glimpse into all of that. But this is still rather arcane, isn't it? So let's look at a different example altogether. Um, the corollary of this postulate is that multiple copies of a work, multiple copies of a work, are exponentially more interesting than one by itself. So this, this is all part of the uh, Rare Book School teaching collection that I helped to develop um, based in response to the question, what happens to a classic novel when it becomes a classic? Um, what's, the, what's the reception history of a, of a great work like Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre? Um, and so Rare Book School has hundreds of copies of different mass market paperbacks of Jane Eyre. These two are one of the penguins and one of the signets. These are from my personal collection. My, my collecting rule for these is that they, ha they cannot cost more than $5 a piece. Um, one tells you something about the price at which it was published and printed and received. Each copy of each different printing, there are more than 60 printings of each of these. Um, each one probably stands in for thousands of copies in that printing. One of them feeds into the typical readerly conflation between Charlotte Bronte herself, that's her portrait, and her heroine, Jane Eyre. The other gives a certain time period, I believe this is a, an 80s or 90s cover, it, uh, it it portrays Jane as a governess, as she ought to be. Other books, other copies are less punctilious, and <laughs> sometimes you get Jane Eyre as a Gibson girl. Sometimes you get Jane Eyre as a pre-Raphaelite goddess. Sometimes the publishers play on the fact that Jane Eyre is a romance, but... Um, <laughs> 
not the way that we think of it today. Um, dozens of translations. These are two of my favorites. Jane Eyre as a classics illustrated comic book with a lurid madwoman in the attic on the prowl. And um, there's Orson and Joan again from the 1943 film in Rebellious Soul, Alma Rebelde. Sequels, prequels. Um, White Sargasso Sea. Adele, Jane Eyre's hidden story. It all began with Jane Eyre or the secret life of Franny Dillman, YA fiction. My very favorite spin-off novel, The Eyre Affair, in which the literary detective Thursday Next discovers that the third most evil villain in the world, Acheron Hades, has discovered a way to travel inter-narratively and plans to kidnap Jane Eyre from the original manuscript, which will put an end to the story as we know it. It's a great read. Um, the Norton Anthology edition, which comes bundled with the Norton Anthology if you're teaching English literature. And you can select one of four classic novels. Jane Eyre is one of those four. Jane Eyre, we could say, is at the center of the English literary canon. And of course, as a centrally canonical work, <laughs> There are four different editions of the Cliffs Notes, four different editions of the Monarch Notes. There are more than two dozen different study guides for Jane Eyre. And um, for those of you who have not read Jane Eyre yet, um, and I do recommend it, it's an awfully good book, um, uh, and you don't have time, you can get Maurice uh, Sagoff's Shrink Lits and you can have the entire novel in two pages. My love behaved a bit erratic. Our nuptial day brought truth dramatic. He had a wife. Spoiler alert, mad in the attic. <laughs> and we draw to a close. I conclude by returning to my earlier theme of great philosophical conundra. If a rare book falls open, does it make a sound? It does make a sound. So long as it has readers to interact with it. This, titled How Books Work, from the Athenaeum's wonderful collection of artists' books, artists books is a book that itself starts as a picture of a book. Artist Julie Chen and her collaborator Clifton Meador have created a book that has to be interacted with in order to be read and that comments on the process as part of the process. Um, a book is an experience, it says. And when you start experiencing the book, opening flap after flap after flap to get at the kernels of truth underneath, um, Julie Chen reminds you that the reader brings the book 
into existence. That's the flap on the left-hand side. Julie Chen writes in her artist's statement, my approach is my approach to the artist's book involves intensive explorations of both form and content. My work is heavily rooted in the ideas of the book as a physical object and a time-based medium. I view reading as an intimate act in which the reader must be in close physical proximity to the book, can control the pace of reading through the self-directed turning of pages or equivalent action, and must interact with the book through the manipulation of the book's physical structure. I strive to present the reader-viewer with an object that challenges preconceived ideas of what a book is, while at the same time providing a deeply engaging and meaningful experience through the presentation of my own text and imagery in a purposefully structured format. Her point, in part, is that the process of engaging with books actualizes them. Thanks to my new colleagues, Mary Warnament and Don Wallace, you can visit a few examples of artists' books and a few others drawn from the Athenaeum's collection after, the talks, after this talk in the display cases uh, on your left. This little selection of some of my favorite rare and fine press books all center on the theme of trees. So we have a corollary. If a rare book falls in a forest, um, you can look at Gaylord Shanelek's magnificent book illustrated with wood engravings, which he printed from pieces of wood taken from his own farm in Wisconsin. Each one 17 different species of trees, each one printed from the wood that it illustrates. And the book itself is bound medieval style in a piece of wood from one of those trees. There's one of those wonderful color-printed wood engravings, tour de force uh, printmaking. You can have a look at the um, incredibly rich and atmospheric collotypes of Peter Bogardus, um, depicting spiritually significant trees in Africa. Um, it's an enormous book, the prints are enormous, and the process by which he produces those prints is unique. A collotype of a photograph is very different from a scan of a collotype of a photograph. You can have a look at the work of Michael Kutch, um, a Massachusetts artist, um, in which he uses found nature objects uh, to illustrate a hitherto unpublished um, short uh, children's story um, by the author of, um, just went clean out of my head, Good, Good Night Moon. One of, one of my favorite books. You can take a look at a late 18th century book about timber using a microscope and de describing the process by which you shave pieces of wood thinly enough to examine the cellular structure. 
Who knew? You can look at a late 19th century um, wood producer's sample book, as it were, containing paper-thin samples of end grain and plank side wood. So, if a rare book falls in a forest, does it make a sound? It does, I submit to you. Its leaves rustle. But again, only if there is someone there to hear it. The real question is whether a rare book matters, if it goes unexperienced, unobserved, unappreciated. Human perception, human interaction, human engagement is what brings it to life. This is where you come in. The Verschbau Reading Room is not just for learned scholars and PhD candidates. It is here for every member of the Athenaeum. While these things are here to be preserved, they are not here just to be left on a shelf for future generations. The future is here now. They're not just to be admired from afar. They are here to be used and enjoyed, to educate, to challenge, to inspire, up close and in person. You all are what makes an Athenaeum. A greeting card of an Athenaeum <laughs> is not an Athenaeum. You all are what make an Athenaeum. Part of what, as members, as proprietors, as trustees, part of what you've done is to pool your resources to support and build a wonderful, rich collection of rare and finely printed books and all the other wonderful things that the Athenaeum does and collects and the services it provides. It belongs to all of you. Your use and enjoyment of our collection is what actualizes it. You make it matter. Thank you.